Next week, we're going to jump out of Romans for uh, our time of Advent, and that'll go through Christmas. Uh, I hope that you will be here. You will see in the beacon what the, the series is going to be, and uh, uh, I hope you'll be here for every one of them and, and also all the events of Advent. Advent is a great time here at, at St. Andrew's. Um, yesterday, we had uh, 20 or so people go and uh, paint uh, Habitat for Humanity House, and we thank you for that. And if, uh, if you're visiting with us and want to know a little bit about the heart of St. Andrews, I hope this will, will tell you something. People in two shifts taking up their, their Saturday for this. And then this Tuesday... We have what I often call one of the best days of the year for St. Andrews, and that is our community Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, we will serve several hundred in, in the Great Hall, and uh, they are mostly seniors and uh, also those that are in some kind of a senior living situation. Uh, some, some of them have uh, physical or mental challenges, and it's, uh, it's a great day. And what I love about both of these ministries that I've just told you about is that they are what I would call pure ministry in this sense. It is ministry of mercy without any expectation whatsoever uh, of any kind of return of any kind of pay, any kind of contribution, or to get members from it, uh, that is not the motivation whatsoever. We have so much to be thankful for, and we want to share with our community. And for many of those who will be here Tuesday, uh, this will be their Thanksgiving meal. And uh, it's, it's such a privilege to be able to serve them. So if you'd like to come and help... Uh, I think last year we had 70-something people throughout the morning. Uh, you can come basically any time from 8.30 or 9, uh, where they'll be cutting cake and setting up and, and starting, and we need a few, few people for that. We're in pretty good shape there. Uh, but most any time uh, during the morning from about 8.30 to 2.00, from about 11 to, we'll serve about noon, um, uh, the, the lunch itself, and then, of course, there's cleanup. And so if you can come for a half hour or if you can come for the whole time, if you're here for the whole time, there'll be some moments where there won't be uh, much work to do at that moment, but it's, it's great fellowship. So uh, if you would like to, to come and, and help, we would love to have you and uh, I can only tell you that uh, you will take joy in this. Uh, it will be a good, a good day, and if anything, it will put your own Thanksgiving Day into uh, a, a better context. So, uh, in Romans 8, I'm not going to read you the, the first section of 8, but let me just jump through a few verses to give you context uh, in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, that, that is the glorious statement that is based on chapters 1 through 7. And uh, it's really, it's what we celebrate today at, at the Lord's table as well. That for those who are in Christ, we don't have to fear condemnation. Not now, not ever. And then the rest of the chapter explains uh, that, and I'm not going to go verse by verse, but verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that begins to explain what uh, no condemnation means. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those, verse 5, who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And there, as we looked into that, what we saw is there are, are two worldviews. There is that, that worldview of, of Adam or the flesh. It is the fallen world. And then, there is the worldview of being in Christ Jesus by His Holy Spirit. And there is no in-between. You cannot have a foot in each world. That is impossible, and this chapter reinforces that again and again and cautions against any attempt in that. And so uh, it, it continues on. We will pick up with Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we praise you, even as we begin, that we are reminded that there is now no condemnation. And we pray that even as we have just sung, that our souls would be satisfied in the Lord Jesus alone. Because if our soul is, is satisfied in anything else, there is no hope for us in the future. And so teach us from your word. Uh, prepare us for this glorious table that you have set before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just these two verses. And, and uh, we want to focus. The first verse there uh, begins uh, with a so then. It's a reminder of... Uh, to whom we are obligated. So then, which is like a therefore, which means you look back on what's been said before, and in this context, I would say that it is especially what was in Romans 8, and that's why I want to summarize at least some of Romans 8 up to that point. It refers back to the previous truth we talked about last week, that 
there will come a day when we will be delivered from this life and evil and pain because we will be resurrected. And when we, and when I say we, those who are trusting in Christ alone, believers, when believers die, <coughs> that is the uh, last time we will ever have to deal with any uh, ramifications of living in a fallen world. And that's a glorious thought. It should encourage us every single day. And those hurts and those pains and those things that we go through because of sin in, in this world, and that, that's our own sin that we, who are believers, should be frustrated with, but it's also the sin of, of others that gives us pain and causes uh, everything to look different. And we will never again have to face those. And what we are celebrating when we go into Advent is looking forward to celebrating His first coming, but also looking forward to His next Advent, which is the second coming. And that's when all things will be made new. Now, he says uh, uh, this. He's basically saying that being in union with Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit gives us a new obligation. So here's how he puts it, though. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's not talking to unbelievers here. If you're here and, uh, as an unbeliever, I'm delighted you're here. I want you to, to listen in to what the difference is for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have a hope for this life and an eternal hope. But don't, don't be satisfied with a soul that is unsatisfied or that you have fooled yourself that you are satisfied and you don't need Christ. So he is talking to Christians here, and the reason we know that is he calls them brothers. And, and that's, what, that's what the Christian family calls each other. It is a brotherhood that is not based upon our shared bloodline, but upon the blood of Jesus Christ that, that our, our choir sang of today. Nothing. Nothing but the blood. And so that's where our relation comes from with one another. But Paul knows that even though we have the Holy Spirit, we who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit, not everyone is going to automatically follow the will of God. All of chapter 7, uh, that big section in, in there that we dealt with, basically indicates that he was struggling with sin in his life. This was the Apostle Paul. And so who are we to ever think that, that we got this? If you think that's the case, then you don't get it. Because as long as we're in this life, we will struggle. But, remember, he ended chapter 7 with the 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So he says, even though we struggle and we, we are in this turmoil that is so frustrating, don't worry because you're not condemned. And so uh, he explicitly in, in this verse says, our obligation is not to the flesh. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, we've talked about this a number of times, but in, in this context, he's speaking not of our, our skin and bones, but he's talking about our, uh, our sinful ways, our sinful thoughts, our being affected by this fallen world. Every single day we are called by the flesh. And that's not just unbelievers, that's believers as well. Every single day we're called by it. We are lured. We are solicited to follow a fleshly way. And, and, and if you can't immediately think of things, then be careful because maybe you've become hardened to it. It's, it's very easy to become hardened to it. You watch TV and you see advertisements that if your children are there, you're embarrassed by, but what if your children aren't there? Do you just kind of let them roll off your back? And it is the, the world in the flesh that is soliciting us Sometimes you, you see an advertisement and I'm hard-pressed to know what they're advertising. What is the product here? Because there's so much, so much of that flesh, that world that, that is luring us to think that whatever it is, whatever the product is, I need that. And it's good. Think about you business men and women. Business practices. Every day. When you know others are getting ahead, others are making more money, others are advancing in your company, and you can, you can draw a line to how they are doing things that as a Christian you don't want to do. If you're in school, in education, when it feels like everybody else in the class is cheating and they're going to get a better grade, how that world is calling you to justify just going along. Because after all, everyone else is. If we're not obligated to the flesh, then what is the obligation to? He doesn't say explicitly, but, but it's very clear, and, and that's one of the problems with taking little sections at a time. If you're reading it straight through, it would jump out at you that he's already said you got the flesh and the spirit, and so if he says our obligation is not to the flesh, then there's only one left, and so it implies by the context 
that our obligation is to the Holy Spirit. Paul is taught the fact that you're either living in the flesh or in the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about what we mean by obligation. With the flesh, he gives a, a result. He says it leads to death. He's talking about spiritual death. Now that death, it's not an annihilation. It's not an end where there uh, will never be anything else left of that person after that. You know, that'd be the easy way out, really, for some. And some would just absolutely choose that. But this, the Scripture doesn't allow for that. It says that we are eternal beings. And so the, the only question is, how will we spend our eternity? And he's made it clear that if we follow the flesh... It will be eternal death, which means eternal punishment that we simply cannot imagine. And for the believer to, to in any way downgrade that when we think of those who are lost and think, well, that'll just be the end of them or it can't be that bad, that's believing the lie of the evil one. We cannot. We must not. And if we have love for others, we will tell them about Christ. He talks then about the results of that obligation. But if by the Spirit you, uh, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let's look at the, the results of that. Um, our, this is our part in sanctification. Now, here we go with theology again, which it's in every verse, so we, we, we have to. But we've talked about justification and how that, that is the work of Christ. In fact, let me read to you one more time the, uh, the shorter catechism answer to what justification is. It is an act, boom, remember that, an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins, so we get forgiveness, and accepts us as righteous in His sight. So we're not just w without sin, we're given the righteousness of Christ only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. So this is talking about our great salvation. Trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life is the way that, that I generally put it. And with our justification, here's, here's what I, I want you to remember from this. We're absolutely passive. We receive. We don't do anything. Don't ever confuse and think that you contribute to it or your own righteousness contributes to it. None of that. As Paul said, God forbid. But then there's the next step, and that's what uh, I, I told you seven. Uh, chapter 7 and 8, 6, 7 and 8, it's talking about sanctification. Now listen to the difference. Remember, um, justification is the act of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time boom. 
thing that takes place. It's an ongoing uh, work that takes place, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God, enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Basically, it's to simplify that, it's the process where we become more and more like Jesus. And it's not like, you know, we're immediately like Jesus. It's a process, up and down and back and forth. We, we all know that. If you're a believer, you know that's the tendency. But here's the difference. Justification, we're passive. Sanctification, we're active. We do do something. Now, it's, you, you can't earn your salvation. You can't even do enough to keep your salvation. But we work along with God's Holy Spirit. So let's see how they fit together. Uh, he tells us to, um, we are told to put to death our sin. I, I gave you a quote on the city, those of you on the city, that said the only sin that can be successfully killed or put to death is sin that has already been forgiven. So the, the, if, if you're not a, a, a Christian, you don't have the capacity to overcome sin, to kill it. You can deal with it like a symptom, but you can't kill it. The, the only sin that can be killed is that which has already been forgiven by God. So first, uh, what are these deeds of the body he talks about? Well, Colossians 3, 5, put to death, it's kind of a parallel verse, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, very clearly, that's not a complete list. That's not even all the Ten Commandments there. These are samples. These are categories. But you see the kind of thing that we are to put to death. So let's talk about the idea of putting to death the deeds of the body. Uh, the Greek word that's used here is one of violence. The idea of putting to death. It's not just resisting. It is stamping out every aspect of whatever it's applied to. It's not giving whatever it's applied to any room to keep living. Now, the Puritans used to use the term mortification, and there are some translations that might even use that mortify uh, those sins. Uh, that's the word we get mortician from. Now, the difference is the mortician, as I understand it, is not supposed to be putting people to death. He's just dealing with death, okay? That's what the word is there. Well, mortification is putting it to death, slaying it, murdering it. Absolutely. So just to give you the, a sense of the tone of the word, the verb mortify or put to death is used 11 times in the New Testament. Of those 11 times, nine of them uh, are instances that are referring to literally putting someone to death. And in each of those nine times, 
the context is a deep hostility toward that one being put to death and toward what they stand for. So now transfer that to what Paul is saying here. You think in terms of applying that violent hostility toward the sin that you wish to mortify. It's your enemy. It will give you no quarter. It will take over if you let it live. Now, let me be clear. That means mortification of our sin does not mean just suppressing a sin in our life. One Puritan uh, uh, illustrated it this way. Here's, I'll use his words first, then explain it. He says, a lion confined within the grates is a lion still, though he cannot go about to devour his prey. Here's what he's saying. If you put a lion inside of a cage, it's still a lion. It still has that same nature. And it may not be able to do anything outside of that cage, but if you open, open the gate, it will still be a lion. It will devour whatever's out there. And so what, what he was saying is, you know, it's not just resisting sin that's, or, or capturing sin for a time. That's like putting a lion in the cage. And it's not just being listless toward a sin. Everyone is tempted toward different things. That same Puritan said it's like putting, um, and I never thought of this, but it's like putting meat in fr- front of a sheep and grass in front of a dog. And they're not going to be tempted by those things. Sheep's not going to want to eat the meat because they don't eat meat. Same with the dog. Well, and so we all have our propensities, in other words. And so if there, are, if there are sins that we know are sins, but you're not particularly tempted by them, that's not the same as mortifying sin. Don't take pride in that. If, if it's just something that, that you really don't, uh, aren't tempted by. And it's not just controlling it in our strength because basically what that would mean is, you know, if we control it in our own strength and we're successful, then what do we do? We get proud of ourselves. So what have we done? We've exchanged one sin for another. So it's not that. So that brings us to the role of the Holy Spirit. And here's the good news. Our obligation to the Spirit, to live a life filled by the Spirit. But we don't have to mortify this sin on our own. And that's the benefit of being indwelt by the Spirit. I want to just give you two two other verses that show you how uh, we are called to work with the Spirit when it comes to our sanctification. Uh, Philippians 2.12, some of you will be familiar with this. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, and now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is the part. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, there's the work out your own salvation, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. You get it? So we are to work and to strive and to deal with our sin, but the bottom line is it's God that's working in us. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do that which God calls us to do. Over in Colossians 1.29, um, for this I toil, I toil, that's a me word, this is what I'm doing, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. You get it? So even when we toil, the only way that will be effective as it is as He empowers us. And no sin will be mortified if it's just me struggling or toiling. It only has a chance to be mortified if I struggle and I toil and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now one more thing. The mortifying of our sin has to be done daily. Don't think that sin can once be taken care of and we'll never have to deal with it again. I think that's what Paul has told us all the way through here. Remember, I've used the term preach the gospel to yourself every day. It's not that you're getting saved every day, but you need to realize the glorious truth of the gospel and of forgiveness every single day. So what do we need to do in order to mortify our sin? To hate it enough to, to murder it, to kill it. You're saying, okay, enough already. I want to mortify my sin. We must take full advantage of what we in theology and in the, in the church call the means of grace. The means of grace. And that is the Word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. And all of these must be applied by the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're not in the Word of God, if the only time you ever get near the Word of God is here on Sunday morning, and that's one, of the, that's one of the means that God has given you to mortify sin. Holy Spirit won't make you do that. Prayer, if the only time you pray is here or at meals, and then the sacraments. If you're in Christ, you've been baptized at some point. But then there is this sacrament. We must not dwell on the sin, but on the Savior. Let me read to you from Robert Murray McShane, who uh, had a, a, a diary, which was very common in that day, and he wrote down thoughts for many days. Here's how he puts it. For every look at yourself... Take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. 
such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. My diary doesn't really read that way. I wish it did. So today, how appropriate that we have access to the Lord's table. It is there the believers tend to look deeper at their sin. I know I do. And it is there that we tend to repent. Knowing that we are to partake not in our own worthiness, but in that of Christ. But we are to, to keep short accounts and to deal with our sin. And it is there, it is at this table that we are strengthened to mortify our sin. Let's bow together. Lord, please help us in this. We do want to feed upon you. We want to be satisfied only in you. And Lord, there are sins in our life that... uh, Maybe some here have just been playing with, just been putting off or trying to suppress, but have been unwilling to mortify. Will you today, Lord, cause us to look deeper and to see our need to deal with those sins and maybe in a way we never have before, to kill them, murder them, but only because Of the power of your spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.